And uh, we're picking up this evening on our study of the book of Acts. So let's go ahead and turn there. Make our way to Acts chapter 1. And our text begins in verse 6. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. We're at that point in the book in which Jesus is laying the groundwork for what would become his church. The church is going to be born, according to the book of Acts, in the second chapter, beginning there. But in chapter 1, as we've said last time, uh, the Lord is taking preliminary steps, the preliminary steps necessary for the birth of the church to take place. We said last time uh, that according to verses 1 through 5, the Lord Jesus, He uh, chose the men, the apostles, who were going to be the foundation of the church. He also commissioned these apostles. He equipped them for the witness that they were going to bear in the world. And He convinced them, as we said last time, that the resurrection that He underwent was truly a resurrection. They were not seeing some sort of phantom. They were not uh, living in some sort of hallucination. But rather, they truly met and spent time with one who had actually conquered death. Now, in the next scene of the book of Acts, which is where we are right now, beginning in verse 6, we will look at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we'll see here in verses 6 through 11, as Jesus goes up to heaven, what we'll see is that he is still uh, preparing the, uh, the ground, the soil for the flowering of his church. But at this point in these verses, verses 6 through 11, uh, what he's doing now is that he's shaping the mindset that the apostles were to have and by consequence the rest of the church. He's helping to know how it is that they were to think moving forward. He's sort of shifting their mindset. Um, And that is, of course, because attitude is everything. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says that as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Uh, So uh, attitude is what really matters. Not so much uh, what you do with your actions, but uh, the attitudes that drive those actions. And Jesus himself understood that. And he wanted to impress certain things in the minds of the apostles as he's leaving them. He wants them to have some truths just branded in their own hearts. And the first of those is he wanted uh, his apostles to live with a sense that his return was imminent. That he could come back at any moment. He wanted them to have this idea of imminence. In their hearts. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says there. So when they had come together. They were asking him saying. Lord is it at this time. You are restoring the kingdom to Israel. He said to them. It is not for you to know times or epochs. Which the father has fixed. By his own authority. So all of this. uh, Seems to be happening in in a kind of official gathering. Of the apostles and Jesus. Uh, The expression that is translated here as to come together 
means to assemble. So it's actually the same verb that Luke um, uses in chapter 16, verse 13 of Acts, uh, with respect to the prayer meeting that the women were having when Paul first met Lydia. And so they had been assembled, and that's what that verb is communicating. And here, the verb is used, and therefore, we can assume that they seem to have set up a time to meet together. We know he was spending time with his disciples for 40 days, um, and he wasn't obviously baby all the time there. He would have sporadic appearances. And they seem to have set up a time that they were going to meet together. And they're getting together for this assembly, the Lord and His apostles, His disciples. And maybe He had even told them in advance that this was going to happen. That this was going to be it. This is going to be the day that He was going to be taken up. And that actually explains the sense of urgency which, 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 with which they're speaking at this point. Um, the verb to ask here, where it says, they were asking Him. Um, is uh, in the imperfect tense. And that makes the action progressive. You can translate it as, they kept on asking. They, they, they insisted in, in, in getting an answer to this question. They, so they were pressing uh, Jesus at this point. They knew, perhaps, it seems that he's going away. And there's one thing that they want to know, something that they need to know. And that was whether it was at this time that he was restoring the kingdom to Israel. Uh, the verb to restore uh, means to change to an earlier good state or condition. And notice, he says the restoration of Israel, not so much Judea or any other name, but they say Israel. Now, when we think of the name Israel, uh, we either think of the, uh, the United Kingdom under King Saul, under King David, under King Solomon, or... If we're thinking of anything past the days of Solomon, we are thinking of a divided kingdom. And Israel is the ten northern tri tribes who actually ended up being carried away uh, far before Judah was because of their apostasy. So it can't be that he's speaking of when they say, will you restore Israel now? It can't be that they're just talking about the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. So what they mean is, are you going to put it? Are you going to put things back together to to what they once were in that golden age when we had David as our king and then Solomon followed and and uh, and and people did not even. Uh, care to have any silver because it was it, there was so much gold and it was so much so glorious um, uh, they're asking are you going to bring us back to that and, and what they mean is not so much uh, literally but rather in the sense that the Messiah now has come and what David and Solomon were picturing has become a reality and they they were right in asking the question uh, they, or they were rather asking the question for some good reason uh, this had been promised all over the um, Old Testament prophets. I'll just show you a couple. Uh, Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16, uh, verse 14 and 15. It says there, uh, Jeremiah 16, 14. Therefore, behold... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, so we're not going to be appealing back to the Exodus anymore. 
but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore to them their own land, which I gave to their fathers. So here is the prophet speaking of a day when Israel would be regathered back into the land. And then you can turn over to Ezekiel, the next book, uh, in chapter 37 and verse 24. So Ezekiel 37, 24. This is, uh, of course, the, the prophecy of, the, uh, of the, the vision of the valley of dry bones when um, God tells the prophet to prophesy to dry bones and he makes them come up and they become a huge army. And he's using that to say, look, even if Israel seems to have passed away completely, I can resurrect them all and gather them um, and he's using that as a way to communicate to the prophet that Israel will be uh, re restored. And so verse 24 is really when he gets to the punchline. It says, my servant David will be king over them. Now, when he says David, he doesn't mean literal David. He means the Messiah, the, the, the greater son of David, the, the, the one whom David pointed to. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in, the midst, in their midst forever. So the Old Testament, again, and this is just, these are just two sample texts. The Old Testament had prophesied repeatedly that, there, that the kingdom would be restored and that the glory of the Messiah was going to be there uh, in the kingdom. And to be sure, Jesus himself had appealed to those promises. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Let's go ahead and turn there. Matthew uh, 19, verse 28. This is one passage in which Jesus states this unambiguously, that there will be a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. It says there, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here is a restored kingdom of Israel with the Messiah ruling in a glorious throne. And then if you move over to the Gospel of Luke in chapter uh, 22, verse 28. Again, these are just sample passages. We know that there are so many more of these. But Luke chapter 22 and verse 28 and 29 It says there, you are those who have stood by me in my trials 
And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of what? Of Israel. So there is a restored kingdom of Israel. The Lord clearly talked about a reunified kingdom of Israel with the twelve tribes together. Uh, gather together again. Well, of course, that is not true of today, even though there is a state of Israel. Uh, there, these promises are still yet to be fulfilled in full. Uh, but, but if that were not enough, that uh, Jesus had promised these things, the, also, he at this point, back in Acts 1, he, remember, had been telling them that they were going to be receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus or the coming of, 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 of the Messiah to end the restoration of Israel and the coming of the Spirit are always, one, are always together. And so it makes sense again, if he says the Spirit is coming, it makes sense for them to say, so the Spirit is coming, the Messiah is risen. So it makes sense for them to say, is the kingdom going to be restored? Because we always see the two together. And, uh, and so uh, it, it makes sense, at least from their perspective, uh, why they should be asking this question. Nevertheless, Jesus at this point, what he does is that he reminds them um, uh, that the question of timing is one that is out of bounds for creatures. Uh, look at verse 7. He said there, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The, the Greek words uh, that are translated here as times and epochs are actually synonymous. Uh, you can translate both of them, and they are across the New Testament, as time. Both are translated as time. But when you put them right next to each other, um, there seems to be a distinction between times and epochs. The first one refers to a specific period during which some activity takes place, while the second refers to a specific moment in time. It's like saying, put your meal in the oven for X amount of time, and once it's ready, then you say, okay, it's time to get it out. So the first one refers to a duration, and the other one, uh, the one that's translated as epoch here, refers to a change that needs to happen. Uh, so in this case, the Lord is actually saying something like this. You don't know how long this age is going to last, and you don't know when it is that the turning point, the pivot, is going to happen. It's not for you to know these things. It's not for you to know. The Father has fixed by His own authority... Uh, these things and he has decided by the same authority not to make you privy to that information uh, the the expression uh, his own there is, is very emphatic it, it, it just it just highlights the self-sufficiency of God his sovereignty is not dependent on anything that a creature might give him he doesn't accept counsel from men or from angels. He decides everything that needs to be decided on his own. And he has decided that you and I should not know a lot of details concerning the future. De Deuteronomy chapter 30, 29 verse 29. The secret things belong to 
the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So some things, again, they belong for us as creatures to know. They are God's gift to us that we should know them. But, um, but other things are for us not to know. And one of those is details concerning the future. This is, by the way, why uh, divination or soothsaying are such arrogant sins and, ter- and terrible sins because it's a proud prying into something that God has hidden, that God does not will for creatures to know. So he decides what we should know about the future. The future is hidden to us. The future is completely uh, known to him because he's the one who decreed it. And he's the one who alone knows exactly what will happen. And there are things about the future that we do know. Um, but uh, uh, in this case, for example, the thing that we ought to know is that the kingdom will be restored. Right? Notice, Jesus does not correct the disciples on that point. The fact that the kingdom will be restored. Some people deny that today. It's very, actually very popular. Very, uh, um, uh, perhaps the majority of people uh, would deny that there will be a restoration of the kingdom of, of Israel. Uh, that Israel is going to go back into the land. And uh, that they're going to be brought back to uh, the glory, their former glory, but actually magnify in that they finally have the Messiah. They would uh, deny that. And they would say, you have to take what the prophets were saying in a spiritual way and say, uh, no, that all that, you know, you need to read that metaphorically. There was no future restoration of Israel itself. Um, But the problem is, again, that Jesus is not telling them at this point that they were wrong about this. And this would have been the moment to say that. He could have said at this point, by the way, Israel's already been restored, right? But he doesn't say that. He's, he only corrects their knowing the timing of the restoration of the kingdom. Uh, so uh, that, the, the issue of timing, the timing of the restoration, which is in this case one and the same as the return, the bodily return of Jesus Christ, that's not for us to know. And he was actually just not giving them that information for the first time. He had said that before. Uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, pretty much a, a classic passage um, and one that raises a lot of theological questions uh, for people. Uh, we always have to be careful in how we interpret and interpret in light of all of the uh, revelation of God. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it says there, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So um, here is a, a statement from Jesus from before His resurrection, before His cross, that no one knew the hour. Now, it's interesting that at, that, at this point in Acts, He doesn't plead, plead ignorance anymore. He's saying it's not for you to know. Uh, so uh, clearly at this point, He's already privy to the Father's counsel. But when he was on earth, um, he genuinely did not know. Some theologians uh, say that he was, this was a, a lie, that he was allowed to lie. Uh, but of course, that would be ridiculous. Jesus was not lying. He truly did not know. 
How do we understand that? How do we make sense of that? Well, he is truly God. He is truly man. As a man, he truly did not know. And how do we put those two things together? Impossible. We don't know. It's a mystery to us. But as when he, he was speaking as a lowly son of man and as the man Jesus Christ, he really did not know. That's not, um, that's not actually all that difficult to, to accept. If you think about it, if all the divine omniscience, so he has a, 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 a human nature and a divine nature. If, and, and the divine nature is omniscient, knows all things. Now, if you made the human nature to partake in that omniscience, if you made a man to know all things, you would be, you would be destroying the humanity of that man. Because it belongs to us as humans to be limited. Correct? And so there, it's absolutely possible that Jesus as a man did not have that information immediately available to him at that point. Because if, again, if he was always operating as omniscient God, then he would no longer be human. Um, so you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, make the two natures into uh, just a third thing, but rather you want to maintain that he really was a man, and there were things that at that point he did not know, namely the timing of his own return. But back in Acts, he seems to now know, but he is saying to them, It's not for you to know, it's not for you. To know Now, the implication of his answering in this way, the reason why he's answering in, is this way, in this way, is because he wanted you and I to live with a sense of imminence, that he can come back at any time. All the things that God gives us are for our good. All the things that God withhold from, withholds from us are also for our good. God has not told us when Jesus is coming back because He wants you to live as if He could come back tonight. Uh, and, and there are so many passages that demand that we, live, that, we, that we think in that way, that Jesus could come back at any moment. Uh, Matthew 24, you might want to turn there with me. Matthew 24 Verse 36. Matthew 24:36. This is back in that passage that we just read, where he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of, of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So now he's going to say, This is why you don't know. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he 
will. So, again, you are to live with a sense of imminence that Christ can come at any time. And if, in fact, if you just read forward to the parable of the ten virgins, what, what's the point of, the, uh, the, of that passage? Well, there were some virgins that were not ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And they were therefore left out of the wedding feast. And what's the punchline? Verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. That's just Jesus' teaching. You can then go on to 1 Thessalonians and find Paul saying the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where he says that the coming of the Lord Jesus is uh, like the coming of a thief in the night. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And then that's Paul. We saw Peter. We saw Paul. Or sorry, we saw Jesus. We saw Paul. What about Peter? Peter in Second uh, Peter three ten makes the same point that Jesus can come at any given second, at any given moment. He can be here, and then um, we will be facing him. Uh, first, uh, or sorry, Second Peter three ten. He says there, but the day of the Lord will come like a what? A thief in which the elements will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So scripture, it doesn't reveal to us again the when of Jesus is coming and it does that so as to keep us alert. You don't know when he's coming You better be ready because he's coming at any time. And this is uh, one of the serious, the reason why I go through these, these passages is because that's one of the serious problems that some of the eschatological positions out there today have. Uh, that some of the views of the end times today that are sort of floating around the marketplace of ideas, they don't allow for a sense of imminence. They don't, they're not... They're not views that, that uh, would hold that Jesus can come back at any second. So, for example, the post-millennials, they say that the church first has to lead the nations to Christ as nations. They um, have to transform in the same way that the, because they believe that we're living in the millennium right now. And they read in the scriptures that there is going to be a massive change in the millennium. Uh, it's going to look differently, and we, all, we believe that. But they say that's the church working, that is going to change the whole world, and then Jesus comes. And so you don't have a sense of imminence at that point, because uh, if you tell me, can Jesus come tonight? I would say, no, of course not. Look at the world. And they actually speak that way. They say, no, the, coming, the second coming of Jesus is thousands of years away. Because they know that... Things are not changing today, and they're not going to change tomorrow either. And they see the progression of it getting worse and worse and worse. And so they say, well, it must be 3,000 years from now. Whereas we say, no, 
evil people will go from bad to worse. And Jesus can come back at any second. So that's post-millennialism. But then um, you have even uh, some forms of premillennialism that do the same thing. So uh, some premillennials uh, would say that, well, the Antichrist has to show up on the scene. And you have to go through a period of tribulation. And after that pre- period of tribulation, seeing the Antichrist and all these things that are prophesied in Revelation, then you have uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and when Jesus Christ comes at the end of the tribulation period, then we are caught up to heaven with Him. The problem with that, again, is that if I saw that the Antichrist came to tomorrow, I would set my clock to wait seven years because that is when Jesus is coming. So there is no sense of imminence in that kind of view of the end times. So how do you have both imminence and then also knowing that there is going to be a seven years of tribulation and then at the end Jesus comes? Well, you have a division, two phases of the second coming. Phase one, Jesus takes his church and then unleashes judgment. And then phase two, he comes right at the end to begin then the millennial kingdom. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So uh, again, you have to have this sense of imminence. This is what Jesus wanted for us. Uh, he wanted us to believe that he could come back at any second. The next event in the timeline of prophecy is his coming. Uh, in fact, he says the sign of the coming, the sign of the Son of Man is the coming of the Son of Man. There will be no sign. There will be no warning. He comes and that's it. Okay, so apart from leaving the apostles with this sort of sense of eminence that they were going to carry with them as they went to to, to build the church, uh, he also did something else. He left them with a sense of responsibility. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. He left them with a burden, a sense of responsibility. That there was something that they needed to accomplish. Uh, chapter uh, 1 again, verse 8, he says... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Um, the term that, that's translated as but here at the, uh, at the top of verse 8. It's actually a very strong adversative particle. He's basically saying in the context, you don't know when I'm, I'm, I'm going to come. But, but, you know this, right? He's emphasizing what comes next. But you know this, you're going to get some power, right? Power to do what? Well, he says right there, to be my witnesses. Now, what does that power look like? Well, for the apostles, this is what it looks like. Being able to heal the sick. Being able to open the eyes of the blind. Being able to unstop the ears of the deaf. Being able to perform signs and wonders and speak in, in different languages. Uh, And all of that was, again, so that they could be witnesses, so that they could prove that the Christ whom they were preaching, the the Christ who restores all things, who makes all things new, who who actually heals all uh, sickness and takes away all sin, that He actually had been with them, that, that this is the true Messiah, even though there had been so many imposters, they could do these signs. And so they were, they were showing, no, the Christ that we're preaching, this is the one. Now, question, when were they going to receive this power? The answer is, he says here, when the Spirit came upon them. 
Now, again, we, know, we, we said this last time that this cannot be speaking of a salvific coming of the Spirit because the Spirit had already come to them to save them. The Spirit was already indwelling them. When you repent of your sins or when you believe in the Gospel, that is because the Spirit of God has come to take residence in you and has made you be born again and given you the ability to believe in the Gospel. Right, so so the, any person who uh, who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a person that has been born again, and so these men were believers, right? And so therefore, when Jesus says that the Spirit was coming, he doesn't mean he's coming to make you born again. He means he's coming to give you some power. He is going to give you the capacity to do all these supernatural signs. So that you can show that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. So he was going to enable these people to be witnesses. A witness, by the way, is one who observes um, an event and then pre presents a testimony of that event. Uh, maybe even at the cost of his life. The Greek word for witness, as you might know, is martus, from where we get the word martyr. And that word even uh, what has, was defined often by the Greeks as one who testifies at the cost of his life. In fact, Jesus uses it that way in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, where he calls Antipas my witness or my martyr who was killed among you. And that is what the apostles, for the most part, they were going to be that kind of witnesses. They were going to be martyred. Uh, we know, for example, that James, he was martyred, murdered in Jerusalem. And then Paul is going to be martyred in Rome. Uh, but beyond that, we know by accounts of tradition, spe specifically the one I looked up was Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there he says that Matthew is killed in Ethiopia. Uh, Andrew is killed in Asia. Bartholomew is killed in India. Thomas also in India. Simon in Britain. And so the apostles, again, they themselves, when he says you're going to be my witnesses, he does mean uh, witnesses uh, in, in the broader sense. But even for, for most of them, uh, John accepting, even though John is really, uh, you might argue that he was martyred and that he died in exile. But most of them, at least, were going to testify even at the cost of their own lives. And by that, they were even uh, fulfilling uh, the prophecy of Christ here, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in the rest of Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, is where the church is going to be born. And the expression all Judea there refers to the rest of Jewish territory. But then there's mention of Samaria. And we know Samaria is made up of uh, a people group that's a combination of Jew and Gentile. So they were half-breeds. They were very much despised by the Jews. But Christ is telling the apostles, you're going to go to them and you're going to witness to them about me. And, uh, and then even after that, they were going to go into the remotest parts of the earth. And Acts records, the book of Acts records Paul's journey to Rome. Right? The capital of the empire that was ruling over all the known world. And so in that sense, Paul gets to even the ends of the earth. 
right? But again, even apart from just Paul's story that we have recorded in book of in the book of Acts, we also have these accounts of these other apostles um, whose stories are not recorded in Holy Scripture, but we know uh, from tradition that they went to all these places, Africa, India, and even Britain. Um, and Paul himself actually makes it to Spain. Uh, so the words of Jesus, they become true. They did go to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's the theme of the whole book. As, again, as I said last time, you can divide the book into three parts. The witness in Jerusalem, the witness in Judea and Samaria, and the witness in the ends of the earth. But, to be sure, uh, the commission itself to go to the remotest parts of the earth, that commission was not exhausted. So it was fulfilled in a true way, but it was not exhausted. Because we know that there are, even to this day, nations, places in the world, where the gospel has never, never been preached. And that means that this commission still is valid. If there are still people in the ends of the earth who have not received the testimony of the apostles, then that means that the apostles are still testifying through the scriptures and through us. And so the uh, commission is still valid. People have actually tried to deny that in the past. Uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, the churches in Great Britain, they had come to believe that the responsibility to take the gospel to the nations, uh, that, that did not fall upon Christians today. They, they uh, believed that. They would say that, that Jesus uh, only meant these words to the apostles and the apostles alone. And not to um, the people who would come after the apostles. And they would say, but the apostles already fulfilled it. They took it to Rome. They took it to um, other places in the world. So we don't have this responsibility for ourselves. Uh, and because of that, they had no interest in foreign missions. Uh, even while millions of Gentiles, if you think about it, were dying every day and going to eternal hell. And uh, that was happening. And at that time, I'm referring again to the beginning of the 19th century. At that time, God raised up a man by the name of William Carey. And Carey grows up reading uh, the... Uh, he, he grows up in the days of Captain Cook and the adventures of Captain Cook. And he's reading these accounts. And he is, he is fascinated by the idea of going to other places and exploring and finding new lands and, uh, and, and, and living adventures. And he loves this as a child and as a teenager. And then God eventually saves him. And he begins to burn with this desire that maybe Christ ought to be taken uh, by some to the remotest parts of the earth. So he's looking around. He's looking around for uh, in Great Britain. There were there were uh, traders from the East India Company who would go so far into the unknown nations of the world. They would go so far to get these goods that they would then bring back and sell them. They were traders. And he's looking at all these traders and he's saying, men are willing to sacrifice and go so far for money. And why can't we as Christians do the same for the sake of Christ? And so he says, I am going to begin to take the gospel as far 
as I can. So he becomes a missionary to India. And he sparks by that deed, he sparks what we know today as the modern missions movement, which is still alive. And there are still Christians who are going abroad and taking the gospel to the nations. But the first issue that uh, Kerry had to deal with, the first hurdle that was that he had to overcome was this mentality um, among his countrymen that the Great Commission was not their responsibility. And to that, he said, wait a minute, as long as there are still unreached people in the world, then the commandment still must be valid. And it must be that we have this responsibility. It's on us by the power of the Spirit to bring Christ to the unreached. Um, and it's, it's on us as much as it was on the apostles, first of all, to reach Jerusalem, which is obviously, if you want to apply it to your case, it's your proximity, where you are, where, where, what's your Jerusalem, uh, to work there and then move into the neighboring areas and then go into all the ends of the earth as far as God will bring you. And uh, 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 this is what the responsibility that they had, that Jesus left them with, take the gospel. This is the re responsibility that today we carry as a church body. We support those who are going to missions. We pray for God even to raise among us those who would say, I want to go and we uphold them in that work. Now, here is a, another um, preliminary step that Jesus takes as he is about to set up his church. So uh, we've said um, that even going back to the beginning of, of Acts 1, we said that he finds these apostles, he chooses them, he, um, he commissions them, he also uh, equips them for the task ahead, and he convinces them of the reality of this resurrection and then in verses 6 and on he gives them a sense of imminence that Jesus is going to come back at any time he also gives them a sense of responsibility that they have to carry out this uh, gospel into the world but he does one more thing and that is he gives them a sense of hope he gives them a sense of hope and that is going to be in verses 9 through 11 read that it says and after he had said these things he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And as they were going, uh, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the way as you have. Uh, just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, notice Jesus, uh, it says here, he was lifted up. Uh, presumably, he could have flown by his own power, right? Uh, but it says here that he was lifted up. Uh, passive um, uh, uh, verb there. And that the point there is that it was the Father who was exalting him. He had... Uh, accomplish the work that the Father had sent him to do, and the Father was now on a mission to exalt him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Father now is living to glorify the Son and to exalt the Son. And that's why the text also speaks of Jesus as being received even by a cloud. 
It says that he was received, that cloud received him out of their sight. The clouds in scripture, they um, are always, um, or not always, but, but, but usually associated with God. You might remember that when God came down to Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments, he um, said that he was coming down in a thick cloud. Um, that's Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. Um, uh, the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20. Um, but, but before that, as the background is being set up for the Ten Commandments, in verse 9 of Exodus 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and that they may also believe in you forever. So God says, I'm going to come down to you in a thick cloud. Now that happens again in, in chapter 34. You go, go forward to uh, chapter 34 and verse 5. This is where uh, God appears to Moses and shows him his rear parts. And it says... In uh, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. So there uh, is another, another God coming and God coming in a cloud. And then if you actually move forward uh, into the New Testament in the account of the transfiguration, it says that it was a cloud who came and the voice sounded, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that Jesus was received by a cloud. The, 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 the significance of that here is that he's being caught up to God. That it is God himself who is, who is embracing him and taking him into heaven. This would have been an astounding sight. In fact, Paul will say in 1 Timothy 3.16 that Jesus was taken up in glory. So there was something so astounding about seeing Jesus being caught up and received by the clouds. And it should have been clear. This all should have been clear to the disciples that, that what was happening was something, um, something astounding. That there, there was a shift of, 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 of an era here. Because this was the moment when Jesus was actually being enthroned as the king of heaven. A man was actually being caught up to heaven so that he could sit on a throne and be worshipped. And so this was a day for the angels. The angels were, were there wondering in the heavens, how can it be that there is a man now who has been caught up and has seated on this throne and we are going to worship this one who is now one with, with his own creation. They are exuberant in worship. You can only imagine what is going on behind the veil there in heaven. He's being enthroned forever. And yet the disciples, they don't seem to get it at this point. They're just sort of looking up. Verse 10 says that they were actually gazing intently into the sky. Uh, that verb can be translated as staring. They're just fixed. Their eyes are just fixed in, uh, in the clouds. And that means that they were... They were expecting Jesus to somehow reappear at some point. They're just kind of looking and wondering, okay, when is he going to show up? When is he going to show up? And he's just, they're just sort of caught up there. And that's why Jesus sends them some encouragement and some help. They need it. And so the text uh, speaks of two men here. 
dressed in white. Uh, the word for white there, by the way, can also mean bright or shining. Uh, and it's the word that John repeatedly uses in the book of Revelation to describe the apparel of heaven dwellers. Uh, so then, and of course, the color we understand symbolizes purity and joy. And there are these two individuals that are standing there in this bright clothing. And they're described as men because they look like men. But we know they're angels, right? They're wearing the, the, the color of heaven. And they just came out of nowhere. And they stood next to the disciples. It's um, amazing to see that sometimes the angels are with us. And God um, has them be our companion. And we don't realize. And in this case, they became visible. And uh, the disciples could see them. And these two angels uh, uh, are there. Uh, I believe they were angels. I mean, I, I, there isn't much debate about that. Especially because uh, two angels, as it says in Luke 24, were the ones that appeared to Mary Magdalene and the uh, women on Easter morning. So it makes sense for these two angels now to be the ones who encourage the disciples as they need some help um, seeing Jesus ascend. And um, let's see how they, they help the disciples. First of all, they address them as men of Galilee in verse 11. Men of Galilee. Uh, and um, the, the only one, if you think about it, that they were all uh, men of Galilee, except for Judas Iscariot, um, who was from Keriot. That's what Iscariot means, man of Keriot. Uh, that would have been a little village in the tribe of Judah. Um, but other than that, now that he's out of the picture, now they can, they're all men of Galilee. And, and by the use of this expression, men of Galilee, he's, these angels, they're emphasizing that the fact that the man who went up there and he was, who was caught up in the clouds, that he was one of them. That... Uh, he is also a Galilean, just like you. And look at what happened to him. He has been exalted in an indescribable way. And uh, the point there is that one day, all who have repented of their sins and put their confidence in Jesus Christ, they also will be glorified with Him. They also will be caught up to God's throne. But in the meantime, they have work to do. We have work to do. That's what the angels told the apostles. Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking into the sky? Why are you doing this? Uh, you're, you're not going to bring him down by staring up into the atmosphere. And you actually have something to do. So rather than, uh, maybe there's a play on words there. Rather than looking at the sky, why don't you go take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Right? Uh, some people actually need to hear this. Uh, because sometimes it happens that Christians get so preoccupied about when the precise timing of when the Lord is going to come back and the signs that we see. Uh, and, and they're just wanting to satisfy this curiosity about uh, all things uh, regarding the end times. That they forget that we actually have a mission. That we have a mission to accomplish. Uh, entire churches sometimes turn into prophetic clubs. We just want to talk about the end times, and they only care about the future, and they realize they don't realize that their mission is actually to win the lost. 
but the apostles, there is, they are, sorry, the angels, they're saying here, stop that. Stop that. Stop just uh, navel gazing and, 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 and set your mind where it needs to be set. The same one that you saw go up, he's going to come down in the same way as you watched him go up. Now we say, how is that? How did Jesus go up? So we can know how he's going to come down. How did he go up? And the answer to that is, first of all, bodily. Right? Uh, he went up bodily. Some people deny that. They say that Jesus has come back in a mystical, spiritual way. Uh, those would be the Bartians. Um, and uh, they have made shipwreck of the faith, right? Because they are denying the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And they're saying that your resurrection has already taken place. Uh, that is, again, a denial of a cardinal truth of the Christian religion. So we have to say, okay, so it's saying here that he went up bodily, therefore he's going to come down bodily as a man, and we have that hope that he's going to come. Uh, moreover, he went up gloriously, right? The cloud took him up, and, and Paul says he was taken up in glory. And he also will come down on the clouds, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and, and great glory. So he, um, and, and the, test, the Old Testament, of course, said that God is the one who, who rides on the clouds. And so that, all of this is an allusion to Jesus' divine nature. So the Son of Man is going to come uh, on the clouds with great power and glory. So he uh, will come down bodily and he will come down gloriously. And here's another, he's going to come down publicly. He ascended into heaven in a way that was visible to anybody that would be looking up. Um, he, didn't, he didn't just um, uh, disappear and, and snapped his finger and, and disappeared out of the earth in a secret way and then, uh, and then went to heaven. But rather, he went up and you could have seen him go up. And in the same way, he's going to come down and the scriptures tell us that every eye will see him. So... He is going to be coming bodily and gloriously and, uh, uh, and uh, I forgot that, I forgot, and publicly, that's right. Um, now, now, here's another parallel that I think is very interesting. Uh, and um, verse 12, if you look at it, it says that they returned um, to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Um, now, what's interesting about that is that if you go to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it says, speaking of the second coming, that Jesus is going to set his feet where? On the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. So, and he's saying, he is going to come back in the same way that you saw him go up. He was at the Mount called Olivet when he went up, and therefore he's going to come down to the same place. 
So we know even where Jesus is going to come down. Now remember, this is distinct from the uh, initial phase of the second coming, correct? First he's going to come, he's going to take his church. And then he, we're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're, uh, we're going to be introduced to the Father's house. And we are going to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the tribulation, he's going to come down. We're going to come down with him. And he's going to come down to the Mount of Olives. As Zechariah said, and as Acts here says. Very interesting things. And all of this would have given the apostles such an astounding sense of hope. Think about it. Jesus, who died and rose again, now was caught up to the clouds. And heavenly messengers are saying, He is coming back. And all of that means the story is written and you win. That is the truth. You can now do everything that he said and then some. You can give your life uh, over a thousand times. If If you had a thousand lives, you could give each one of them for Jesus Christ. You could, you could spend for Him everything that you own. Every minute of your existence. Every uh, penny that you have. Every resource. All of it you could put in the service of this man. Because He is going to return in glory. And He says, I'm coming and my reward is with me. So, when you have that kind of hope. And then you combine that kind of hope. With this sense that Jesus can come back at any second. And then you combine also that sense of imminence with a sense of responsibility that God has called us to spread the gospel. Uh, to, to go out into all the world. When you have all of these together, now you're ready to be Christ's body. Um, These are the attitudes that the church needs to have. And so Jesus, again, he's laying the groundwork for the church that he is going to begin to build in uh, the second chapter of Acts. And he has um, instilled these attitudes in the apostles who are the foundation of the church so that they can pass them on to us and so that we can all live and work together and exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now there's one more thing that still needs to happen before the church can begin. And that is one final preliminary step. And that is that the traitor who gave up Jesus, he needs to be replaced. Judas needs to be replaced. Another man has to take his office. And that is what's going to happen in the next scene of the first chapter of the book of Acts. And we'll consider that next time. Pray with me. Father, we um, do thank you so much for these attitudes that you have um, invited us to have. How glorious that that we um, can give all that we have. And if we had to live a thousand lives, we would give them all for your son, um, we wish to be such people. We, we, we are grieved over the fact that we are so inclined to sin. And um, we, we pray that you would cleanse us and that you would continue to sanctify us. So that we might have these attitudes and might always be living with a sense of em- imminence. And with a sense of our responsibility 
and uh, with a sense of hope uh, so that we might be effective in your kingdom. We ask these things because Jesus is worthy of all um, and we want to give all to him. So enable us, we ask, for his name's sake. Amen.